0: Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship with your host, Claudia
1: Pauls. Welcome to the show. Today, you're going to hear an interview with a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Rick Hutner lived through this abuse and has turned his story into a book, hoping to help victims of abuse. Resilient People, a journey from childhood abuse to healing and love, aims to help victims take back control learn to love themselves once more, and finally be free. One of our producers, Dan Moyle, sat down to talk with Rick about his story, his book, and his mission.
0: So this is Dan with uh, I'm Not in an Abusive Relationship. I'm filling in for Claudia today for this interview. And I'm I'm, I'm glad to have our guest today because uh, he's he's an author. He's someone who supports... Uh, victims and survivors. He's doing great work in the world. His name's Rick Hutner and he's a survivor of physical and sexual abuse who, who now works passionately to spread the message that all abuse survivors can heal. And his book that he wrote, Resilient People, A Journey from Childhood Abuse to Healing and Love, uh, gives us that idea. It gives inspiration. It gives tactical tips as well. And it gives his experience so that those of us who have been through it can see ourselves in that and then see the hope. So, uh, we're going to get into a deep conversation today, so I'm glad you're listening. So, Rick, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate this opportunity.
0: Uh, we appreciate you spreading the word like you are as, as an organization that tries to help victims in situations, but also survivors after the fact. Uh, a book like yours, I really do think does some great work. So we're going to get into that. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the Resilient People initiative that comes out of this book. What does the initiative do?
2: Well, when I was uh, deep in the healing process, which I didn't start until much later in life, and uh, began to heal, and I just thought, uh, my God, all the reading I've done, there's a lot of people out there, and if I can heal, maybe. I can help other people heal. Mm-hmm. So I started writing that book and it it was really in the making for three years. And then I had uh, a faith community I knew in Houston. I spoke to the minister and I said, Jesse, I'd like to uh, speak on a subject. And that was a Sunday. He says, yeah, well, uh, we'll I'll have you Wednesday night. I <laughs> said, whoa, <laughs> I need a little bit of time here. He said, all right, how about next Wednesday? And I, I did it, and uh, I wasn't great. I thought I was actually terrible, but people, really, I got a lot of good feedback. Hmm. And then I spoke to a faith organization that had about 900 members, and but I practiced every day for three weeks. Every night when I got home, I stood in front of a mirror and did it, and it came out really well. And then I started speaking more and more and worked on a book. And uh The book was a challenge to write. Uh, It was very difficult reading the words. Uh, I got a lot of support from my wife and children. Initially, my wife was a little horrified that I was gonna actually write those words on a page, but I Mm. I felt in my heart, if I was gonna help other people, they needed to know what I went through and could heal. Mm. So my premise is, Two things. I will never ever again be ashamed or embarrassed about what happened to me mm-hmm. because I did nothing wrong as a child. It is always the caregiver's responsibility to protect the child. Mm-hmm. No matter what. And a second thing I want people to know is they can heal. I'm not saying it may be the easiest thing in the world, but they can heal and live a joyful and productive life. So those are my two driving missions in this
0: and i as i was reading the book one of the things i took away was how how important those two things are but almost first is the idea that if for for victims for survivors it it truly is not your fault and you hammer that home quite a bit that that's something that victims struggle with isn't it
2: absolutely most of uh, victims of childhood abuse blame themselves for one, a child's brain cannot comprehend abuse, especially from a loved one. Mm-hmm. And in reading the book, you'll find it actually damages the brain to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And, and they, but for me, I believe I committed this terrible unforgivable sin and carried that with me for years. So I, I turned religion against me hmm. and because I didn't know. I mean, I, I w- I was uh, my mother tried to kill me when I was six months old. A best friend of the family, a policeman, uh, sexually abused me when I was 13. Hmm. And the thing was, he took a couple of years to prepare me for that because pedophiles are two things. They're incredibly charismatic and they're very strategic
0: so he spent years grooming you yeah getting ready for that that's can you look back now and see red flags that you can share with people to say if you're a parent watch out for this
2: well if you're a parent uh know what's going on in your child's life notice behavioral changes even slightly um and and you know I, I I had German immigrant parents who who loved me very much but you know my father's goal he immigrated from Germany without a high school education and did did very well but his his way of showing his love was to do better and better for the family hmm. so he didn't play with me that much and uh, this this cop just moved right in to fill that hole took me swimming you know bought me my first rifle, a Mossberg 22, taught me how to shoot it, how to clean it, how to care for it, take me riding in this police car. Um, No one ever questioned those, neither did I. Mm
0: -hmm. Is, so this is, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I can't believe you would be his only victim while he was grooming you. He had to be doing this to other people absolutely
2: one of the things i found out much later uh, this happened in a small community in upstate new york we we lived on long island my parents bought a little old one room schoolhouse for two outhouses which was our summer place and the community knew about this hmm. they just didn't do anything about it
3: hmm.
0: i'm sorry that your community failed you on that that i i hope that in today's world that doesn't happen anymore, but I don't, I don't know that that's the case. Our community is better about seeing that rather than just, you know, like I, like I remember reading in the book, you overheard a couple of people just say, Oh yeah, he likes young boys. Ha ha. Like that's yeah. not, that's not okay. How, how much more aware are we of it today? Do you think, and that we do something about it?
2: Here's the the challenge, Dan is when there's a sexual assault outside the family, there's normally public outrage. Mm-hmm. It gets in the media, and if the child's missing, there's a huge search. If it happens within the family, the first response is, we don't talk about this. We don't air our dirty laundry. We'll deal with this within the family. That does two things. Protects the abuser mm-hmm. and keeps the abused in an abusive relationship. That's the challenge. 90% of abuse is by someone a child knows, trusts, and loves.
0: Hmm. So as you're going through your, uh, your healing, and you're writing this book, which I imagine has further healing, at what point did you decide that it's not just a book, that it has to be the Resilient People Initiative?
2: I just You know, if you look at statistics, and statistics are cold and hard, but over 7 million children are abused each year in the United States. You know, abuse has no socioeconomic boundaries. It's prevalent in extremely wealthy, extremely poor, in all religions, and in all societies. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hoping to do with this is make people aware and the awareness um you know i i i knew somebody's names i can't mention but the 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 father was abusing the children and he he committed suicide hmm. and i think he did that cuz he knew where he was going and he couldn't do anything whatever whatever it was He he felt he couldn't do anything about it, so he created a permanent solution to kill himself. You know, um, uh, I don't know what happens to people. Uh, I don't know what happened to the man who abused me. I suspect somewhere along the line he was abused. But if if there can be sufficient awareness, first, children become aware that something's wrong. How to deal with it appropriately, mm-hmm. second, if an adult goes, "Wait a minute, what am I doing here? I need to get help, mm-hmm. and then get support to get the help um, those are challenging things.
0: Mhm, yeah, absolutely, and so that's a big part of the the mission then of resilient people initiative is to spread that awareness, then yeah.
2: Create awareness mm-hmm. on, on, on the adult front, uh, the caregiver front, the, 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 the children's front. See, Dan, children have no voice. Mm. It wasn't too long ago this Me Too movement started, but it took some very powerful and very wealthy women to make it work, mm. and they created a voice. Children don't have a voice. You know there's still embedded in our society in our consciousness, uh, from the old European thing, that women and children were chattel. They were owned by the man. Mm. Man wanted to beat his wife, he'd beat his wife. If he wanted to beat his children, he'd beat his children. And no one questioned that. I think somewhere deep in 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 the mass consciousness, there's still some of that belief, and that belief needs to be have the light of uh, and love of God and whatever. I don't want to, uh, you know, profess any one religion here because I talk to all religions, mm-hmm. but that has to be brought out into the light of day. Because mm. what's in the dark, when you shed light upon it,
3: it heals. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's such a, a deep subject. We can, we can gloss over things so easily, but really to kind of give, give weight to some of that stuff. I'm I'm just kind of taking my time on this because it, I want people to to really hear what you're saying, Rick, because I, and I don't, I don't want them to go read the book. I mean, honestly, it, you know, I, when we talked earlier, I said, I, I couldn't put it down. I, I sat down to read it. And, you know, two, three hours later, I was still reading it and and I don't read like that. so. <laughs> like it just, it it was just so well done, so authentic. At times raw. Um, what's it? What is it like for you, or what was it like for you to share that story in book form? But also then, you know, on in, in interviews like this or speaking presentations, is it still a healing thing for you, or are you kind of removed from it? What's that like?
2: I think um, I'll never stop healing. Uh, I live a joyful and wonderful life right now. i got a fabulous wife, 35 years, four kids, six grandkids, um, and uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm truly blessed. But it took a long time to get there. I don't want other people have to wait as long as I waited. So to me, it was to just, you know, I believe that, you know, the universe will give you a message. Subtly. And then, then it'll make that message a little stronger. And uh, Then it may hit you with a two by four. Mm-hmm. Finally, it ran me over with a dump truck. And I could no longer avoid the things going on in my life. Mm-hmm. No longer. I mean, I, I have failed business relationships early, early on. I had a failed marriage. Um, you know, I just, I, I would do incredible, and I would let something mess it up. And in many instances, I knew I was messing it up, and I did it anyway. You know, there's a a pathology there. When I finally began to look at it, uh, a number of things, you know, truly uh, brought me into the healing modality and I committed years to that and and it worked.
0: Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was actually going to be one of my, one of my talking points was the, the universe smacking you in the face about your behavior. Um, <clears throat> it, it, part of the book where you talk about that was in getting past denial and you describe in the book, a trifecta of events and people who helped the universe smack you hard Uh in relation to your cycle of self-sabotage. Take me back to mm-hmm. that, to, to that story for listeners so they can really kind of understand what you were going through at that time.
2: Well, I, I, I started a number of businesses and they grew significantly and, and, and should have been worth a substantial amount of money to the investors and to me. And I made a bad decision and they had to be sold either, uh, uh, certainly at a severe discount, although everybody made money. Uh, but then I got in a transaction which uh, two people I believe were friends. One I had consulted with for uh, about 15 years, and he was trying to raise money for a transaction, and I knew a gentleman who would do that, and I put him together, and uh, the the deal went bad, and this gentleman sued everybody. You know and uh and the law- it, the lawsuits went on for over four years hmm. and uh I spent nine hundred thousand dollars in legal fees at at one one point he hired the ex head of the f b i in Houston, Texas and drew up all the stuff that this guy presented to the current f b i hmm. and They launched an investigation, the SEC did, and the FBI. And I got a call from the FBI one day, and I thought they wanted my help. (laughs) And I said, sorry, I'd be be glad to speak with you. And he said, well, Ms. Tutner, we we need you to be aware. We do want to speak to you, but you're a target of a criminal investigation. I went, what? And I had already cleared with the SEC. uh, So this went on another year. And uh, I finally got cleared of that. But the legal system is is, is brutal, mm-hmm. brutal. I mean, this guy sued my children. Mm-hmm. And it took me a, at least a, almost two years to get the lawsuits out of Texas in the federal court in Arizona, in Colorado. And at the first hearing, the kids were dismissed with prejudice, so they couldn't go after them again. But mm-hmm. it still cost a tremendous amount of money. mm mm-hmm. So uh, in all that happening, I was, you know, I was, I, I contemplated suicide at the time, but, you know, that that's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. And a number of things happened in the book. Uh, I was in excruciating pain at the time. I mean, real debilitating pain, not being able to move and, I was laying on a couch one night, and and my wife's a classically trained singer, and I always loved hearing her sing. And I was laying there just in pain and miserable, and she started singing. And I was listening, and I realized I had absolutely no pain. Hmm. And I went, whoa. And as soon as I realized that, that pain came flooding back. And I had previously... Someone gave me a book by a Dr. John Sarno of the New York University Medical Center called Mind-Body Prescription, mind-body being one word. And he posited this theory that pain is the result of subconscious rage. And you may not even know, need to know what the rage is about, but you need to know how the mind works. Dan, I read that book every day for three days, did every exercise, and slowly the pain went away. I was scheduled for back surgery. The doctor said, Rick, you've got incredible mobility. Go out, play golf, hike, you blow it up, I'll fix it. And then the the second thing, I had a friend of mine who moved to Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And I came to visit him. And and his wife, his new wife, Rebecca, who I, I just met, then said, Rick, Sunday we're, we're going to go up to church at the... Uh, Oak Hill church on the border, a Missouri, Arkansas border, tiny little church. And I said, uh, uh, I'll tell you what, Rebecca, you guys go, I'll just hike around your property, which is really beautiful. She says, no, you're going.
3: And <laughs>
2: <laughs> Rebecca wasn't someone to take no easily, but I went up there and there's this like 93 year old, tiny itty bitty little woman with the, the, Most incredible sparkle in her eyes I had ever seen. And she looked at me. She says, you know, I I see Jesus in your eyes. But she probably got bad eyesight, too. (laughs) And and, uh, so we started. And if you've ever been to a Pentecostal service, a whole lot of praying. Then they have the service. And Bueller says, Rick, uh, I don't have a Sunday school. It was small. There were 18 people here. And probably six of them kids. And she said, "I don't have a Sunday school teacher so you're going to teach Sunday school." I said, "I don't think that's a good idea." She said, "Well, I do." She gave me the book and said, "All right, kids, go join Rick." (laughs) I went, "Whoa!" (laughs) Now I had a very strong religious upbringing with respect to biblical stories and all. I I didn't. uh, My mother' philosophy of, of religion and God was pain and suffering. And you, you never heard the word love from her. So I I didn't have that in my lexicon with this, but I knew all the stories. So I I I did what you'll ask, but I was looking at these kids and they were looking at me with this incredible brightness in their eyes. And and we we did the whole thing, it was good and they asked questions, and I got out of there and I went, Boy, this was a gift. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Beulah and I would fly up there some more than I was planning to see my friends and to see Beulah. This woman was a circuit minister and a midwife. She had the most incredible faith of anyone I've ever met in my life and the most incredible love. You know, for her, Jesus Christ and God were pure love. Hmm. And that's how she lived her life. If she got a call in to go somewhere she didn't check her wallet. she went <laughs> she always she knew without question she would always be provided for and uh she opened up my heart again to to god and and jesus and and i don't uh, I have respect for all religions mm-hmm. uh, I've studied most of them because I was always looking for answers, but this woman uh, allowed my heart to open again. Mm and it was a sick, significant part of my healing experience. And a, a third sin- significant one was an organization called Manprime, Mankind Project, which is an international organization of men's groups, run by men for men. And the leaders are all trained and have to have to pass a lot of tests, but it's a place where a man can go and be heard not interrupted and not judged. And I was always uncomfortable around men because of sexual abuse by a man. Hmm. And when I went there the first time with a lot of encouraging from a friend, I just listened and I, I was, I was surprised that how respectful everyone was and how caring they were. And, and that they, they have agreements confidentiality, which said there stays there. And, but the support men got absolutely stunned me and I stayed in that In fact I I still go uh, not as much as I used to but there was the impetus to write the book Mm. because there's when I realized I could heal not superficially because Dan I always looked outside myself to get healed I went to healing programs spiritual seminars all over the country but I never looked inside I wanted someone to heal me. And what I finally realized, that healing has to come from inside. And those three experiences did that. Hmm. Because when the thing happened with listening to Annie sing in no pain, I realized something happened in my subconscious mind. And I explored that rigorously. And I still do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, but it was healing. It was incredibly healing. So what I know is when you commit to heal and that first step can be the most difficult, acknowledging abuse, mourning that, but going on a healing journey. And I know this, when you commit to do that, a divine presence will help you every step of the way.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And like you said, you know, you, you have your faith doesn't, discount anybody else's you can't call it the universe aligning whatever you want to call it <clears throat> it is that that divine plan to help you heal um that's that's a thread throughout your book so that's very good um well, so i, I want to continue on the healing path in just a minute here and talk about uh the therapy uh individual and group settings that that you explore in the book but i want to go back to something that, that you talk about early in the book um and you mentioned it earlier even on our conversation your mom tried to kill you when you were six or six months old six months old six months yeah. old um and and you talk in your book about uh, about repressed memories um, there's also a, a part of your part of your abuse story is blacked out in your mind because your body your your mind wants to to repress that What's it like to have one of those repressed memories surface? What does that feel like?
2: well uh, here's where I know. Uh, you know, we, we develop fears. We push fears down and become demons, mm. and they bury very deep in our subconscious mind. I buried mine with alcohol mm. and workaholic, and 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 uh, uh, a, a temper with a shoe, a fuse so short it was ridiculous. Mm. But the the you know, somewhere along the line, the pain gets so great, it's hard to avoid. And I just had to stop avoiding it. And I, I uh, developed a lot of strategy, strategies. I, from, from the time I was some, uh, past six months old to my early 20s, I had two night terror dreams. And one dream was I was in a room, I knew I was small, it was kind of dark, and I felt this incredible pressure on my chest and throat. And I did everything I could to fight it off and I couldn't and I I just finally gave up. And, and then I'd, I'd wake up and I was terrified and soaked in sweat. And the other dream, I was in that room, I was obviously in a, 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 a small bed or cradle or something. And I knew someone was coming to hurt me. I knew it. And I had a handgun and I could point that handgun, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't pull the trigger. I could see myself. I could see my face contorted in terror and no sound coming out. And and again, I'd wake up soaked in sweat and terrified. And when I finally got into therapy at the suggestion of some very close friends, because my life was not going well. Uh, and in that therapy, with the help of two very professional people, I realized I was little. I couldn't stop my mother from hurting me. And when that realization came along with a lot of emotion, I never had those dreams again.
0: Okay. So it can manifest itself in things like night terrors, fears, anger, um, and then finding the outlet for that is what's important. In therapy then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people self abuse. We all most survivors do to an extent. Some some kids cut. Mm-hmm. You know, take a razor blade and and don't don't not to commit suicide, but they cut. And it's it's like we kept punishing ourselves when the abuse stopped. Because again, most uh, abuse survivors as children believe they did something wrong and that's what the perpetrators want them to believe.
0: Hmm. So when you kind of realize that there's something going on there, is... Therapy, do you think the first step is it talking to someone to find a therapist? What, what do you do when you kind of realize that you have that repressed memory, uh, the, the demons, as you call it? What's the first step that's so difficult to take?
2: I think acknowledging it and then talking about it. But talking heals. It's critical where you talk about it. Twitter, Facebook, all of those, horrible place to do it Mm -hmm. because you have no idea what you're going to get back. Um, If you can find a very trusted friend, uh, a a member of the clergy that can be trusted, uh, I think if you go, you should go with somebody. If it happens to be a family member abusing you, pick somebody close to you where you, you trust and never go alone. You know, um, and and w- once you start talking about it, it kind of breaks the dam, uh, and then there's just continuous work. I mean, I wrote, I, I I have pads and pads and pads of writing I did, but if I had a negative feeling, I stopped suppressing it. I I didn't grab for a drink or. Or go back to work or get angry. I wrote about it. And I realized as I let those feelings come up that I was so terrified of and let the light of the divine shine upon them, they began to lose their power over me. I'd like to tell you it was immediate. It wasn't. But the more I did it, the better it got, the better it got, and the better it got. Until finally, they didn't bother me anymore. Hmm. I don't know that I'll ever forget the abuse, but it doesn't control my life, Dan. It doesn't upset me. For again, I did nothing wrong
0: as a child. Amen. Amen. So, so once you you make that acknowledgement, and and I, I love the idea of journaling. By the way, I'm I'm a writer, and. When I was younger, I w- that's how I would deal with a lot of my emotions and stuff like that. So journaling, you know, incredible. And I've seen it too, as a suggestion through other programs, like the conquer series, um, trying to help men find purity, um, from porn addiction, that kind of stuff. Um, so journaling is huge, but once you decide like, okay, maybe it's time for therapy. Uh, you had two experiences. You had, uh, the individual therapy and group therapy, and they both had different. Uh, benefits to him, I guess, uh, from yeah. your book. So let's the, talk about that. The,
2: okay. The individual therapy was with a husband and wife couple and they did what was then called transactional analysis or nicknamed I'm okay. You're okay. Hmm. And, and, and I discussed that in the book and, mm-hmm. and that was a safe place to begin and, and recommended by one of my best friends when I went to a uh complain about him how i wasn't being appreciated at work and he said rick you got a problem i'm your best friend you need to get therapy and i'm going to give you the name of these people and if you don't go i'll take you Mm -hmm.
0: and what a uh, good friend (laughs) i mean i'll take you right smack you in the face with the truth and love and then i'll take you like what a good friend
3: yeah
2: one of the best things that ever happened to me, and then I was in private therapy. I'm not sure it was it six months or what, and then they put me in group therapy, hmm. and I stayed in that uh, for about a year and a half. And I, I stayed longer and became an assistant. I didn't need to stay any longer, but I loved doing it. I I I, I loved uh, just watching people heal, hmm. and the more they healed, the more I healed. Uh, I know. Every time I speak, I heal a little bit more, mm. you know, and then I get people come up and tell me how much it's helped them. And, and that just touches my heart.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can see that in the, throughout the book that, that does, you know, you're, you're doing this to help and what a, what an admirable thing, Rick. Um, what, so when, when you're thinking about that kind of therapy and stuff, when is the best time to start therapy? as
2: soon as after you've been abused or find out you've been abused,
3: Hmm.
2: immediately. I do know this through helping some people through organizations, the faster they get help, the quicker they can manage their life and deal with this issue, it's when we bury it. Bury those painful memories with drugs, alcohol, sex, war, over- the, the list is long. Mm. Um, the longer we let that go, the more it buries deep in our mind. And here's the thing about the mind, and it this is truly powerful. Uh, our brain is a collection, storage, and retrieval system. Doesn't do anything more than that. Got some automatic stuff to make sure you breathe, which is good, make sure your heart beats. <laughs> But the mind, the mind, I believe, is connected to God, and I firmly believe what you create, you can uncreate. So I know after I was abused, I created the life of an abused person. I was guilty. I was bad. I was wrong. And and after that abuse, which that man swore me to secrecy, said, Freddie, I was, that was my given name, but I, when he said, Freddie, this is so beautiful between us, and I love you so much. You can never, ever talk to anybody about this. And for 20 years, I never did. Mm. You know, it was like a command. He's a policeman. He's a friend of my parents. And I'm, I'm like, I'm a 13-year-old kid. So when we went back to Long Island and got in school, I developed a stutter so severe I could not introduce myself. Hmm. The command of silence. And and shame requires three things: secrecy, silence, and judgment. And I adopted all three.
0: Hmm. And what a twisted way to use the word love. This Right, I love you. Don't tell anyone. Like that's not okay. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's not okay. But pedophiles are not okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Pedophiles are there to satisfy a deviant sexual desire. They don't care about the life of the uh, person they abuse. Mm-hmm. And that's and, again why parents have to be very careful on mm-hmm. kids because pedophiles are incredibly charismatic and strategic.
0: Yeah. We got to watch out for our children. Like you said, Rick, that they don't have the voice that adults do. So we need to give that to them and listen to them and uh, hear them and believe them. So absolutely. What, what piece of advice would you give to to a, a sexual assault victim? What would you want them to know?
2: Well, the things you've heard one, you did nothing wrong. I don't care what your experience was. You know, one lady came to me one time and said, you know, I, it was horrifying, but I had an orgasm. I says, look, that's a biological function. And and uh, you couldn't help that. Mm-hmm. Now you're judging it and, and you did nothing wrong. And that's, that's what I want to drive home more than anything you know, the responsibility belongs with the caregiver. And that caregiver may be a criminal, criminal pedophile. And so helping a person get through the knowledge they did nothing wrong, and then guiding them to heal, and to go into the healing process and be supported in that, is the most powerful thing we can do for an abuse survivor, Hmm. and uh, encouragement may be needed along the way uh, quite a few times. I've spoken at one faith organization. I know a number of people keep coming back, and we keep working with them.
0: Hmm. Very good, Rick. Thank you so much for for sharing your story with the world um, and not being afraid or ashamed anymore and uh, and helping others get through that. Where is the best place for listeners to connect with you and find your book? Uh,
2: the book is on Amazon. It's it's joyfully made the bestseller list in this category. Hmm. Um, and they can go to resilientpeople.us. www.resilientpeople.us has a website all the podcasts, what what we've done here. If you send me that'll appear on there and they can go there and they can email me at any point in time and we will respond and and give as much guidance as we can.
0: Very good. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time today to uh, speak with listeners of I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. Uh, You've given advice, you've given inspiration. Is there any last Uh, A thing you want to offer to listeners?
2: Well, we were all born beautiful, beautiful children of a creator, a divine presence. That beauty isn't gone because there is a spark. I don't care what happened. There's a spark in you that will light up when you're ready to light it up. And that, to me, is a divine presence, and it's always there, and that light is always on, no matter how dim it may seem to us at the moment. Hmm. And if you're really in stress, don't commit suicide. Uh, Read the book. You can go to Suicide Hotlines. You can and will heal. And and thank you, Dan, for giving me this opportunity, because that is a gift.
0: You're welcome. Absolutely. And I hope listeners absolutely remember that, you know, they have, as you mentioned, Rick, the suicide hotline, the DASIS hotline, the national domestic abuse hotline, the national sex assault hotline. I mean, there's, there's those numbers out there pick up uh, that 800 pound cell phone and call. Cause that's the hardest thing to do, right? Is to pick up that phone, yeah. make that call, but do it, do it, please do it. Reach out. Absolutely. There is hope. So thank you so much, Rick.
2: And I encourage people to buy the book that will help. Dan, thank
1: you again. Thank you for listening. As always, we're here to help. If you need resources or help in any way, call our 24-hour hotline at 800-828-2023 or visit dasasmi.org.
0: Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, org. That's dasismi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff,